I begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather and meet today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples listening here today. Welcome to the Body Track Academy podcast created by EPs for EPs. The podcast will take you on an in-depth understanding of everything an EP is faced with on a day-to-day basis, including clinical, personal and business practices to ensure you become the best practitioner possible. If you enjoy the podcast, make sure you like, share, follow us on whatever streaming service you use to ensure the message spreads and you are notified of any new podcast or educational resources available to you. Furthermore, if you're not already part of our online academy, head over to Facebook and join the Body Track Academy. Happy listening. Hi everyone, you've got Ashley here, one of the EPs at Body Track, um, bringing you a special podcast this week. So we have one of the allied health professionals that we work closely with to um, help service our community. I'd like to invite Jess to the podcast. Welcome, Jess. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, so Jess is a, I'll let her explain a little bit more, but she is a dietitian um, by trade, but she's also doing some interesting things. She doesn't kind of call herself a regular dietitian. So Jess, explain to us kind of what your, what you do and what your day looks like, I guess. Yeah, sure. So yeah, um, as Ashley was saying, yeah, I'm not the, I guess, the normal dietitian. Um, I think most dietitians these days um, have yeah a banging social media account, um, lots of things with like recipe development um, and, you know, is a dietitian full time. But I actually only work as a dietitian one day a week and then the rest of my time I am doing my PhD. So that is um, obviously in the area of uh, nutrition and dietetics. So we are working with Indigenous communities trying to create a low sugar like alternative um, with Uh, like a carbonated drink with native ingredients in it um, with the goal of trying to improve Indigenous health. If we can get um, communities to choose this drink over the full sugar soft drinks, um, then, yeah, we're hoping that that might lead to um, or contribute to decreased rates of type 2 diabetes and other chronic diseases um, and, yeah, hopefully help close the health gap that we know exists between Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations. So that's me most of the time. And then, um, yeah, on one day of the week, I work as a dietitian. Yeah, wow, your week is so busy. I don't know how you keep up with everything. But I think that's really cool. And, I mean, we already know there's such a gap in research and in the community between care, between different culture groups and I think it's awesome you're kind of showcasing that and bringing some different research to light um, and hopefully that starts to make a bit of an impact going forward. The reason why I have Jess on the podcast this week, I'm sure the listeners are wondering, is it's actually our um, National Diabetes Week. So like Jess, I've got a bit of a special interest in diabetes and managing and helping people improve their health who do live with diabetes. Um, any of the forms. So today we're just going to be going through um, kind of both sides of management, more so from Jess's point of view of how she um, helps those living with diabetes as the dietitian, and then um, kind of a little bit of me adding in my parts to how it's important to see 
both uh, both practitioners and balance out both sides of things of diet and exercise and then how that affects other lifestyle factors as well. So I guess just explain or just kind of tell us what your kind of management of clients look like, like what to expect or what typically your um, session looks like when you are seeing clients. Um, it can be diabetes or non-diabetes related, up to you. Yeah, awesome. No worries. So um, when someone comes to see me at Grow Life, we'll start off with the, our initial consult and that will go for uh, around about an hour. Um, essentially, the biggest shock to lots of um, my patients that I see is that um, there's lots of questions about not only food, but also outside of food. So um, lots of questions about um, lifestyle, blood test results, what what your job is, um, the foods you eat, your thoughts around certain foods, stress, bowel, so the whole spectrum. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's important to consider every aspect of a person's life if we're going to be trying to work together to design strategies that fit within a person's life. So I think it's important to be on top of that. So that's normally the first half of that initial consult. And then, um, the second half is, um, you know, going back to the client goals and then kind of working together. Um, there's normally some education delivery in the second part of the consult um, and yeah, working together to really achieve what the client's wanting to achieve, creating some strategies that fit into their lifestyle. So um, not just the like the, you know, eat more veggies, but like, how are you going to eat more veggies? Let's think about what might work for you. Do we need to have frozen veg in your freezer all the time? Or do we need to have like a prepackaged salad mix there ready to go for you? Like thinking about the the how, not just the what. Um, and yeah, so in that initial consult, we're talking a lot about, I'm really trying to get my patients to think about their motivation and their goals and what they're wanting to get out of the session. You know, like um, a lot of the time, <clears throat> the initial responses oh it's because my doctor told me to and um i really try and urge clients to think further beyond that so um you know what's in it what's in it for you you've showed up here today for a reason like what are you hoping to get out of it and get them thinking critically about that so that's kind of what we um knock over in the initial consult and then from there on typically i see clients every um, fortnight might be three weeks it might be a month it might be every couple months it depends on um, yeah what they're coming in for and what they want as well um, in our review consults typically it'll be like a follow-up of strategies that we spoke about in our previous session um, you know we'll troubleshoot things that didn't work um, I always say the initial consult we use those strategies as kind of like a, a launch pad and you know if it doesn't work, there's a million other things that we can do and there's a million other tweaks that we can make. So we kind of just go through and make sure it's fitting into their lifestyle nicely. Um, and then, yeah, we'll keep going on with the next part of intervention or talk about a, a new set of strategies or I'll deliver a next point of education, whatever else it might be. So, um, yeah, to sum it up, I guess it would be um, collaborative and individualised, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I like, I mean, you have a very similar approach to my style of treatment very holistic and trying to incorporate different um, lifestyle factors strategies is not kind of a one-size-fits-all as we know and everyone comes from a different kind of you know belief and value so sometimes it can be quite difficult with motivation or just actually changing people's kind of beliefs around eating I know that's one of the things I do a lot of the time with exercise and you know education is a big part of that so it's just trying to 
find the best way to deliver that information, not overwhelm that individual and make sure that they're kind of on board with the plan you've come up with together, I guess. Um, how do you, this is just a side question for me, how do you go with um, people who might come to you with kind of past negative experiences? So they could have seen like a dietitian in the past or maybe they've just heard stories about dietitians and they're kind of quite negative in their mindset, I guess, and then, you know, trying to get them on board and convince them that this is better for them and it's going to improve their health. Like, how do you tackle that? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. And um, it's definitely something that myself, I guess, as a dietitian, I'm um, kind of faced with more often than perhaps <laughs> I would like, like the client that I just saw before literally um, was saying like, oh, I wasn't too sure what I was expecting to get out of this. And I know what to do. And I didn't think that I'd get much out of it. Yeah. Um, but by the end of the session, she was saying like, she said, look, I've got some, like, you know, I just want to let you know this feedback. I think you did really awesome. This was really useful to me, really valuable. Um, so I, yeah, I, I think that if people are showing up to the consult, then that's all that I need from them. I think once they're here, that's that's the hardest part that they've that they've done that. So that's yeah. good. And then from there, as soon as they start to see kind of like um, the approach that yeah the approach that I take, and that it's it's not what they oftentimes have in their mind and it doesn't fit this stereotype that um I think lots of yeah dietetics workers kind of yeah it's like we're the food police we're going to tell you to remove (laughs) this and not eat that and um and as soon as they can come in and they see that like you know we've all got bubbly personalities and we're enthusiastic and we want you to enjoy food and um so much the police that, that they thought yeah yeah and as soon as they can start to see that it kind of starts like throughout the consult you can just see their walls kind of coming down and then being more open about it um so yeah as soon as they show up I think that that's the hardest bit once they've done that then yeah I think we're good to go and by the end of the consult we always seem to end up on the same page with it which is nice that's so that's so pleasing because I mean I can count on my hands how many times people I see an exercise on the exercise side of things and they're like, oh, no, no, I, I don't need a dietitian or I'd never go to a dietitian. Yeah. I'm like, you need to just try it. And you yeah. know, once you've tried it, if it's not for you, it's not for you. But like same with exercise, you've got to you've got to just get there and see if like see what the experience is like. And it's so hard just with um, people who have maybe had previous like negative experiences. So I think, yeah, like you said, as long as you get them there, then you can start to use your education and your motiva- uh, motivating techniques to help um, get them on board and, and encouraged to start that plan. Well, I think, I think we can probably both agree that people living with diabetes have a lot of different things they have to think about, consider. They are, um, sometimes a more challenging client because there is so many things that can contribute to their health being so poor. So I think let's start with kind of typical things you get asked or kind of myth busting, to just kind of get some kind of fad questions, um, common questions that maybe aren't even true, but people believe it because that's what they've seen on social media or within the media. Um, I think the most common one I hear is I can't eat carbs because I have diabetes. But from your point of view, what's the what's the go on that? Because you know, you're yeah, the best person to have that would tell us the right information. So, yeah, yes, yeah. So. Um, I will, it's obviously a can of worms, but um, we'll, I'll just try to be um, as in-depth, but also keeping it as simple as possible. Nice. Um, so to answer that question, um, 
uh, there's one study that comes to my mind. There's a couple of things that come to my mind, but um, essentially I, before I say anything else, carbs are not the enemy. Um, and yeah, it, it really makes me um, sad when patients are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or whatever it might be. And they think that, you know, for the rest of their life, they need to go without ever having a slice of bread again, without having a carb again. And that's really sad because, um, yeah, as I was saying before, food is such a big source of joy and socialization. And this, like, it provides so, so much to our, like, quality of life. Exactly. And um, I think if patients or people aren't enjoying that, then I think that, um, you know, we're not doing our job properly, essentially. So um, in terms of carbs and what that means from a perspective of type 2 diabetes, um, obviously having carbs and having sugar influences our blood sugar levels. Um, and so to talk a bit about what I want to talk about, I think um, just understanding the standard model of care or the standard approach for type 2 diabetes management um, is probably important. So um, the standard model of care is essentially that modest reduction in carbohydrate intake. So it's let's alter the quality. So from high GI to low GI carbs, let's alter the quantity. So let's make sure that we're, you know, we're having moderate amounts, um, not, you know, excessively consuming any sort of carbohydrate food at any one time. And let's make sure that they're distributed evenly throughout the day. So we're not having like five pieces of toast with jam for breakfast and then not having any carbs until dinner time. Let's make sure we're spreading that nicely throughout the day um, so we don't have this huge spike in the morning and then this huge decrease throughout the day. We want to keep it consistent. So that's the standard model of care. Um, now, there's a trial that was done in 2017. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's the CSIRO trial. Yes, yes, yeah, I've heard of that yes. one. Yes, yeah. And so essentially what they did was they put um, patients with type 2 diabetes on less than 50 grams of carbs per day, which is essentially like ketogenic. So very, very small amount of carbs. Yeah. Um, most people have like 300 grams ish of carbs a day for reference. Uh, and then they increased that to 70 grams of carbs per day after X amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually found that, yeah, the results for that um, were really quite good, um, which was, and adherence as well was really quite good, which is interesting um, because most other studies in the area of low-carb diets, you kind of see adherence really drop off and compliance is always really poor because it sucks to not have carbs. So Absolutely. And, and like, as you know, our physiology, we need to have some form of carbohydrate. Like you can't have none. Our body needs yes. some, even if it's minimal. Really? Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I think there's just so much mis, like, miscommunication and confusion around this. So it's so interesting you explain that. Sorry, I'll let you keep going. No, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and so, yeah, what this study found that, yeah, essentially if you're having less than 50 grams of carbs, less than 70 grams of carbs, that's going to um, – that that – you know, is shown to decrease your HbA1c and all of the other things, which is good. But then it's kind of like, think, you know, this is a management. So by it being a management strategy, it implies that that's what you need to do for the rest of your life, mm -hmm. um, which is, yeah, it doesn't really sound appealing for lots of reasons. And as you were saying before, I think carbs are important, well, they are important for a lot of reasons. So um, 
we, in Australia, we have what's called the acceptable macronutrient distribution range. And that essentially recommends that in our diet, 45 to 65% of the food we eat should come from carbohydrates. Then it's like 10 to 20% protein and 10 to 30% fat or something like that. But 45 to 65% should be carbs. So, and that's for optimal chronic disease prevention. Um, so I think that that says a lot. The other thing as well is, um, our brain can only use carbs as energy as well. So um, if you're removing that, you're going to be mentally, you're going to be feeling gross. You're probably going to be in a bad mood. Um, and um, yeah, another reason as well is we need carbs to be able to perform any sort of like high intensity activity. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if we're not having carbs, we're not going to be able to perform um, at that level. So like, yeah, there's all, and you know, if we're thinking about our gut health, that's another thing. One of our main sources of fiber is from carbohydrate containing foods. If we're removing all of that, then it's going to be really tricky for us to try and get the fiber that we need. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's so many reasons why I think that carbohydrates should be part of a healthy diet and I think that the adherence of trying to you know do that less than 50 grams of carbs or less than 70 grams of carbs um yeah I think that that becomes pretty tricky and then especially as a management style um if you're thinking about it in terms of trying to get into remission then um well that's the other thing is if you're not having carbs then are you really in remission if you're not yet yeah, you know what I mean? I like, do. And I, I was going to ask too, do you know if the CSIRO have done like a follow-up study? Because a lot of the time, and we see this in exercise too, they get put on like this six or 12 week, you know, study yeah. and they have great results because it's very like non-bias controlled, but then to apply that into like a real life situation, you don't have that same control. You don't have that non-bias. So it's, um, it's always hard to then replicate. Like the evidence is good to support it, but it's like we see with exercise, people who do like an eight week program might drop a lot of weight because they're doing such yeah. high volume, high intensity exercise. But then when mm -hmm. they go back to, you know, trying to integrate that into their lifestyle for life, it's not as, yeah. it's not as adherent and it's not as possible. So then they either um, gain that weight back or, you know, they slowly start to gain it back. Um, and it's just, similar thing with diet and what you're explaining if you cut the carbs out or cut them down so low people won't you know long term be able to sustain that they'll eventually relapse or end up eating more yeah. and then you know putting themselves in a worse worse health um situation so i think yeah it's, it's 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 hard there's no right answer but i think the i guess the notion around like you can't eat carbs if you have diabetes needs to kind of somehow been be squashed because that stigma exists so much out there yeah definitely and the other um important thing to consider is when patients typically are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes chances are they'll be on some sort of care plan or something um and on that care plan they can get yeah five rebatable visits which is great mm. um but if if we're trying to put them on a low carb diet which um, to reduce their HbA1c or whatever it might be, for them to be able to understand what that looks like and what that means and how to kind of monitor that and track that over X amount of time and then for them to slowly perhaps try and come off that, they need to be seeing like a dietitian, you know, 
really consistently, like if, if they're on a care plan, they might get two visits to go and see a dietitian. And so trying to tackle a really like restrictive approach like that um, and a really intense approach as well, like oftentimes it's just not feasible to do. And like the the two sessions or the one session that we get. So, um, and what we don't want to do is, you know, as you said, kind of set set the patient up, oh, do a low-carb diet, you know, only eat one slice of bread a day or whatever else it might be, and then just let them be for the next, until we see them the next year when they get one more visit to come and see us. And then, you know, maybe they've gone off the, you know, and they haven't, I don't know, they kind of make up, I don't know, it's hard for them to do that when they don't have that um, that regular sort of check-in with yeah, someone. They're, then, kind, of, yeah, they're they, kind of accountability, hey? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, just for if anyone's listening in terms of carbohydrates, I know you are generally very individualized in your um, advice, but I guess general advice, particularly if there's anyone listening who may be living with diabetes, what would you say would be you know, maybe a good range or a good place to start in terms of a carbohydrate um, recommendation for them if they're trying to reduce their blood sugar levels and their HbA1c? Yeah, I think that um, most people by kind of following this, I guess, rule of thumb of having three, two to three serves of carbs at main meals, so breakfast, lunch and dinner, and then one to two serves of carbs at you know, morning tea, afternoon tea, maybe a dessert, depending on height, weight, other things like that, mm-hmm. um, is generally a good guide to go by. And that kind of feeds into what that standard model of care is. Um, in terms of what a serve of carbohydrates looks like, um, it would be like the equivalent of you get one piece of fruit, one slice of bread, um, generally get something around the size of your fist can um, be counted as like one serve. So um, that's, yeah, that's kind of that like standard um model of yeah what we and that normally does mean that it's a modest reduction for most people anyway just by doing that that's typically going to give them less carbs than what they need which should lead to those modest improvements in hba1c blood sugar levels and all of that sort of stuff um but yeah the thing that that maybe won't be as helpful with is remission which is if if the client or the patient is chasing remission, then, um, yeah, that's maybe a different story because remission rates using that standard care is, I think, like 4% or something um, really quite low. So, yeah, that's why when it goes back to talking with the client about what are they hoping to achieve, how intense of an intervention are they willing to undertake as well, um, and, yeah, keeping those sorts of things in mind throughout it as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think being honest and just very like straight up about it's a behavior modification, it's going to take time, it's not going to change overnight or, you know, in in the first month, everyone's always looking for the quickest, fastest, most affordable way to do things now. And unfortunately, we know with health that it's slowly occurred over time. And unfortunately, that's going to take, you know, maybe not the same amount of time, but it's going to take at least a decent chunk to, to start to change those behaviors and start to see a change in their health too. Um, so thank you. That was really interesting. I do have a few questions. My next one is going along with our myth busting kind of theme, fad diets, <laughs> things we see a lot on social media, eat certain yeah. ways, eat t- like types of things. What are the most common kind of fad diets you um, maybe come across with people asking you about? I know I had, this is really strange, but I had a lady who I saw a few weeks ago um, and she was telling me she's on like this pepper diet where she 
has like a mm. shot of pepper drink every day to cleanse her body and so I thought okay. gosh I've never heard of that one before so I went away and looked up the cayenne pepper shot diet <laughs> um but yeah I'm sure you can't you've you you get people coming to see you with many other different things so tell us um what sort of fad diets have you come across and had to re-educate around and things like that <laughs> yeah yeah there's some I mean I'm still learning about new ones and I think some of the most common ones are the keto sort of low carb one and most people try these extreme diets because they're trying to lose weight really quickly of a lot of the time yeah. that's that seems to be the end goal for them all so um yeah keto um fasting and skipping meals and things like that um shakes or liquid diet um juice cleansers um I heard like a cookie diet was one that I thought was a bit strange <laughs> Strange as well so um it was like this the cookies were high in protein or something and so you had like oh. eight cookies in the day and then that was all you ate for the day very oh my bizarre goodness. that is that yeah. doesn't sound good <laughs> no I yeah yes big red flags um so and um and then there's also now as well, um, I'll just touch and I won't explain it in much detail, but like the injections and everything that you can get now as well, like Ozempic yeah. and things like that, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, all kind of feed into um, and look really appealing for patients that are wanting to yet yeah, have like a quick fix. Like a, I, I call it like a Band-Aid fix because yeah. if you do any of these things that are very extreme and very intense and very restrictive, chances are you will lose weight. But then it comes back to the question of, okay, is it sustainable long-term? Are you going to be able to adhere to it in a year's time? or And how's it going to impact your quality of life and thinking about those sorts of things? So yeah. um, I, like, I like that Band-Aid, like a Band-Aid effect is a great way to understand you know what that means once you rip it off you might have a good a good like effect for a while but eventually you might have to then band-aid it again yeah exactly and like (laughs) throughout that you haven't really like I don't think that you learn much as well like you know yes you can um kind of get rid of all the carbs or just have OptiFast or whatever for x amount of time and like that's all good and well and you can lose weight really quickly but then when that finishes then it kind of like the what's next like what happens next is your behavior going to change around food is your mindset going to change around your eating habits um because they're the important things to consider because that's what's going to make it sustainable for you in the long term so um yeah i can go through a couple um of my of the common ones so i guess like keto fasting and shakes um are the main ones that i kind of come across Mm -hmm. um i feel like fasting is a very very popular topic in society at the moment so maybe start with that one because I feel like that's probably most appropriate and then you can definitely go through the others yeah totally yeah so um fasting from a from a weight loss perspective I don't know that it has much benefit beyond a regular calorie deficit and that's what the studies show all the time Mm -hmm. fasting can have additional benefits perhaps maybe um, with regards to like longevity and healthy aging and all of that sort of stuff but that research area is still very new and controversial so um i would never recommend fasting to someone who's wanting to live a long healthy life for example like i just think that it's not there to back that up yet um but from a weight loss perspective if you're skipping meals and if you're you know doing the um what is it the eight 
eight, 16, or if you're um, having like a one day fast or whatever else it might be, there's all these different ways you can go about it. Um, essentially, at the end of the day, what's going to make you lose weight is that energy in versus energy out and being in a calorie deficit. As long as you're in a calorie deficit, you're going to lose weight. So no matter how you get there, that's going to be the thing that makes you lose weight. So um, if you are skipping breakfast and then that means that your total daily calories are less than what would be required for maintenance, yeah, you will lose weight by doing that. But you could also lose weight by including breakfast and just reducing the amounts of portions throughout the day and still achieve that same calorie deficit. Um, another thing with fasting is going peri- going for periods um, like without eating can make you feel like um, you get like this, um, I don't know, this overwhelming urge or desire to perhaps overeat in times when you actually are eating. So you may, for example, if you're doing the 16-8, in the period of eight hours when you are eating, you might actually eat more calories than you otherwise would if you were to just eat, you know, again, regular meals throughout the day um, because your body's like, your body is like physiologically like craving food. Um, so, and it can kind of lead to that um, disordered way, like this sort of binge and restrict sort of cycles and um, which, yeah, obviously isn't great for us either. So, um, yeah, I think, and the other thing with fasting you need to be a little bit cautious of is it can kind of interfere a little bit with your like metabolic rate and your metabolism. Um, if you're eating sporadically and irregularly, then that can kind of, yeah, cause your metabolism to maybe decrease a little bit, which means there's less energy going out at rest, which again can make it trickier to create that calorie deficit in the long term. Yeah. And I would say we, on my side of things, I see that a lot where people might start more of a fasted diet, um, whether it's, you know, a day fasted or just the eight hours in the day, uh, sorry, eating for the eight hours and fasting for the rest Mm. of the time. And a lot of the time they don't have success because like you said, they're actually eating more in the time that they are allowed to eat and then it, it, it disrupts their metabolic processes and they eventually gain weight because their metabolism slows down. And so I always, I mean, I can only give general advice, but the first thing I always say to my clients, if they haven't seen the dietitian, is one, go and see the dietitian. But two, if you can try and just eat consistently and regularly just to, you know, make your metabolism regular so it knows when you're going to be having food uh, energy in and then with your energy out with your exercise because a lot of the time people that are fasting their timings of their food intake is actually so variable it's not even regular and then that's where their body you know doesn't know whether to store that for later or burn it at that point in time so I think yeah yeah that's a really it's really interesting what you said because it definitely I've seen it in real life with the consequences of you know it's not working for certain people, but absolutely it works for some people. So I guess it's just an individual mm. preference. Yeah, if it fits into your lifestyle and it's it's a useful <coughs> tool to help you lose weight and you found you have success with it, by all means, like a dietitian would be able to help you support that. But um, yeah, as I said, I would never recommend fasting as yeah. a way to lose weight. For, like there's nothing magical about fasting to make you lose weight that you can't get from a calorie deficit. Like the reason you would lose weight through fasting is through a calorie deficit. So I think that um, makes a lot of sense the way you've described that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, And then, so that's fasting. Um, Do you want me to talk a bit about the liquid? Like I reckon, yeah, because there's still some definitely traditional views out there around, you know, just doing shake diets. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think people have that 
misconception where where if they're not eating food but they're drinking a liquid it's actually better for them but as you know and I know it's still the same thing (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) well I think it Um, is you tell us (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so with the the liquid diet I think again like I think that there's a place for them and I think that they can be like the OptiFast shakes for example can be really useful for people leading up to an operation where they're told they need to lose weight really quickly or whatever it might be I see use for it there um and more so in an acute like hospital setting um but beyond that like as a dietitian i'm when i'm thinking of liquid supplements and things like that i'm thinking of that in the context of high protein high energy eating for people that are actually trying to put on weight and the reason is is because when we're having these shakes or liquid liquid calories, um, they're actually oftentimes easier for our body to consume than if we're consuming the whole food because we don't need to chew it. Our body isn't using energy trying to break down the little bits of food because it's already broken down. So we don't, it's not as energy intensive for our body. Um, and yeah, it's, it's easier for us to do. So I would actually recommend that for someone who's trying to put on weight and struggling to get enough energy through food. Um, And the other thing as well, like um, I think having shakes can be a really easy and convenient way to keep track of the calories that are going in your body. You know, like you have three three shakes a day and that gives you 800 calories or whatever it might be. Mm but um yeah they're not going to be satiating again um when i've had discussions with patients about oh you know someone told them to try a shake diet or a liquid diet you know the the main thing for them is i'm going to be in a bad mood i'm going to be angry i'm not going to be feeling full it's going to impact me socially i'm not going to be able to have dinner with my family or go out with friends or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um and at the end of the day it's yeah as i said it's it's a quick easy way to be able to count your calories so again it's going to be calorie deficit that's going to lead to weight loss and whether you're achieving that through having shakes or if you're achieving that through still having you know a healthy balanced diet but just having slightly less of it and altering the quality of it you're going to get the exact same results yeah cool um and then just very quickly we're just going to cover the keto side of things oh you can hear my dogs barking in the background (laughs) Um, can you just cover the like the keto side because i guess um maybe still is now but even a few years back it was definitely one of the most common questions i got asked about you know going on keto diet will help reduce my blood sugars will help reduce my weight um and there was still kind of evidence slowly growing around that that topic and whether it is actually beneficial or whether it's not so tell us a little bit more about that yeah definitely um from a yeah from a weight loss perspective i think when people go on keto and i have like this graph in my head but you see it in studies all the time when they go on a keto or a low carb diet you see like this rapid decrease in weight loss and then it kind of plateaus over time and then it will start to maybe even increase again as time goes on the reason why there's that rapid decrease is because um keto is obviously low carb um each gram of carb that is stored in our body is also stored with i think it's like three to four grams of water as well so when we go on a low carb diet we're removing all of those carb stores in our body thereby we're also removing a whole lot of water weight from our body so it can kind of give you the impression that you're losing a lot of weight really quickly but Mm -hmm. um yeah really it's just water weight um and obviously for most people that are trying to lose weight it's the fat mass that you're trying to um get rid of so it can kind of be a bit deceiving and kind of give you a false sense of hope that you're doing 
really great when really it's just the water content in your body that's kind of decreasing. So um, I always think that that's an interesting point to bring up with clients. Yeah, that is really, um, I think a lot of people would like not even think about that too, particularly, you know, clients, patients that are losing the weight, they wouldn't even assume there'd be any water loss there. Yeah, yeah. And the other um, the other interesting thing with going on a keto diet is you're cutting, again, you're cutting out or decreasing significantly the amount of carbs that you're having. So all food is made up of different macro, macronutrients, carbs, fat, or protein. And if you're cutting out one macronutrient, if you're cutting out carbs or really decreasing carbs, then you might be more prone to kind of compensate or increase the amount of your other macronutrients, so fat and protein. And what's interesting is fat is actually double the energy density of carbs. So carbs and protein have an energy density of 16 kilojoules per gram, and fat has an energy density of 37 kilojoules per gram. So um, if you're, again, if you're not like strictly counting your calories and making sure that you're still in some sort of deficit, then perhaps by decreasing carbs, you're just increasing the amount of fat that you're having. Fat's double the energy density, so you might actually even be more prone to put on weight or something if yeah, that's wow. the case that's there you um, go. yeah that's what one of my clients said that she had that experience where she went on keto um and was having all of these really high fat low carb foods um and yeah unfortunately she ended up just putting on weight on it and was so confused as to why mm. um and yeah you know that obviously offers an explanation as to yeah why that is the case so again same with all the other ones if you're it comes down to being in a calorie deficit. If you want to be in a calorie deficit by cutting out carbs or cutting out fat or cutting out protein or doing any of these crazy things, then yes, it will lead to weight loss. But you can also be in a calorie deficit and achieve weight loss by having like a healthy balanced diet. Yeah, awesome. And I think that summarizes it really well because as as you've said, you're all about prescribing the most individualized like you know plan or give the best information and advice around the eating and you know behavior change for that client so i think it just goes to show those fad diets are obviously just you know things that people find small success or instant success in, and it's not something that's long term or you know able to be be shown in a study that it is a long-term behavior change that is successful so I think it just comes back to, you know, if you're having trouble with your eating or if you're needing to, you know, balance the exercise with the diet, it is important to reach out to a dietitian and get whether it's, you know, a practitioner referring someone on or the the patient themselves, getting that extra help and advice is really important if they have to lose weight or if they want to reduce their blood sugars. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, I know that and there are studies out there with the, um, well, probably for all of those reasons, but specifically with like the shake diet, there's the direct trial. I don't know if you've heard of mm, that no, one. I haven't heard that a, one, no. Yeah, it was a study that was done um, a couple of years ago and they essentially gave patients with type 2 diabetes um, like shakes. It was like a very low calorie diet in the form of shakes for six months, which is just a a huge wow. amount of time. That's a um, long time. <laughs> yeah. And um, they gave that to patients with type 2 diabetes. And then they found that it actually put, like, I think it was 46% of patients into remission. When you compare the standard model of care, I think I mentioned before, with the standard model of care, I think about 4% of patients go into remission. So there's a huge difference there, but it's still less than half of patients that go into remission for doing all, like, 
that's a huge part of your life. That's a huge impact on your quality of life. Um, compliance was really low in that study because it's tricky to do. And again, if you're thinking of it practically, like in terms of someone's diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, if that's the approach they want to take, then yeah, two visits to see a dietitian or whatever it might be, that's like nowhere near enough like care and monitoring that would be needed to be able to do something like that appropriately. Um, and yeah, I also, and yeah, I also think that um, I am kind of, I, I would never recommend a client to do that because I think that would just be awful of me to tell them that. And um, I think, and, yeah, I think it's just, it comes back to, it's like, the, it's like just a, it's just un, unattainable. I think, you know, yeah, you start off totally. really strong, you start off really adherent and then you slowly start to become less adherent unless you've got really good accountability and, you know, support systems. So if they're not yeah. seeing you regularly, then that's unlikely. Or if they're not, you know, intrinsically motivated, the individual, um, or if they don't have people at home that are supporting them, then that's how so easily, you know, that yeah. diet becomes a negative experience. And then yeah. it continues to change the mindset around that, that eating and, you know, behavior. Um, but yeah, thank you. So interesting. Let's go a little bit more specific into type two diabetes. Um, Mm. and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but in terms of high GI, low GI, like, what does that mean for diabetes? Where do people start or, you know, where can they get information that's going to give them the right information? Um, because I think, all the time I get asked simple questions like that and I can, you know, again, be like, it's better to have kind of wholemeal bread or, you know, grain bread over white bread, but I don't know the specifics. So it would be good to hear from you kind of what you get asked and just some little examples for EPs out there that are listening or clients themselves. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the um, the main difference with high GI versus low GI, GI being glycemic index, um, each food kind of has a glycemic index between zero to 100. And the closer to 100 it is or the higher it is means, yeah, the higher GI it is. So um, what that means when we're talking about glycemic index, if you're comparing a bit of white bread to a bit of multigrain wholemeal bread, for example, um, what happens when you have the white bread is, yeah, it goes down your esophagus gets into your tummy, into your small intestine. And then what it means is from your small intestine, it getting absorbed into your bloodstream. That kind of happens all in one go. So it happens really quickly, really rapidly. So if you're thinking of your blood sugar levels um, that are just chilling at maybe like a four, for example, then if you were to have that slice of white bread, it all of a sudden it'll spike up to a thing. And then it'll slowly decrease over time again as your insulin comes and helps out and puts the glucose into the cell. So it's that rapid spike of blood sugar levels that we see with high GI foods. If we compare that to a low GI food like wholemeal bread, um, for example, same thing, you eat it down your esophagus, into your tummy, into your small intestine, but the rate at which it gets absorbed into your bloodstream is a lot slower. So um, instead of that spike, it's like a more gradual and a more dulled down version of a small rise and then a small, again, a small decrease. So um, and your blood sugar level, instead of going to an eight, might go to like a six or something, which is within that normal range, which is good. So um, that's why, yeah, typically patients with type 2 diabetes, we want to make sure that they're opting for the low GI varieties um, or the higher fibre varieties. Um, Foods that are high in fibre are normally lower GI as well, just because having the fibre in the small intestine, the sugar can kind of get intertwined and kind of stuck a bit in there. So just by virtue of that happening, it can slow the rate at which it 
gets absorbed anyway. Um, so yeah, typically higher fiber foods, if you're looking at the back of the um, label of any sort of food product, if you look at the nutrition information panel, anything that has five grams per 100 grams or above of fiber means that it's a good source of fiber. Um, typically foods that are um, kind of less refined, more whole foods, um, typically less processed foods are going to be lower GI. Um, yeah, so you can get a whole range of like fun wholemeal pastas, chickpea pastas, they're all good options. Same with wraps, you can get like low GI protein wraps, you can get um, brown wholemeal multigrain seeded sort of wraps, they're all good choices. Um, similar with bread, getting something like that has a little bit of wholemeal or a little bit of bran or something that's in there, um, that's a good choice as well. And when you are having high GI foods, so um, confectionery foods or whatever else it might be, that's when you just need to be cautious to try and limit the quantity of it. So um, if you're having one square of chocolate versus, um, I don't know, two lines of chocolate, that's obviously going to have um, a significant different impact on your blood sugar levels. So um, yeah, that's when the amount becomes more important there as well. Yeah, because we do with our, I think, yeah, with our exercise side of things, we always check people's blood sugar before and after exercise. And so obviously yeah. we, we get people to come in um, in the morning and we don't expect them to starve themselves. We expect them to have breakfast or, you know, mm. some sort of um, yeah. food intake before they come in to do their exercise. And I think there's, again, it either comes back to the client just having a poorer health literacy or just them not quite understanding that, you know, that change in blood glucose across the day, which we expect to see go up and down. Um, people can become become quite kind of frustrated or like disheartened because their blood sugar is so high. And luckily with exercise, a lot of the time we see that come down because they've, um, you know, had that natural glucose uptake through the exercise um, anyway. But um it can be a bit disheartening for them when it doesn't, you know, it doesn't come down or it's already starting really high. And I have to reiterate to them, remember you've had this for breakfast or you've had this addition mm -hmm. that, you know, you've had honey on your toast. So of course that's yeah. going to be naturally a bit higher, but doing your exercise, moving your body, you'll get natural glucose uptake to like a increased degree. And it's going to bring mm -hmm. it down over, over that next hour or over the course of the day. So I think, yeah, touching on those different types within like, you know, high GI, low GI is really helpful because people realize they can still have it. It's just going to have that change to their blood sugar. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, exercise is something that, I mean, I can obviously only give generalized advice in that area, but um, yeah, I all, like I kind of explain the role of how by doing exercise, um, your, your healthy glucose just come into your cell more as well. And so oftentimes, like my granddad has type 2 diabetes and he will always measure his blood sugar levels after exercise. And it's always, always, always lower than before exercise. And I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's great because you're literally using sugar. So that's good. <laughs> Absolutely. Now I do have one question for those um, patients that are maybe on insulin injections just um, because they've had poorer glycemic control or, you know, they've, their health unfortunately has led them to be insulin dependent. Um, is there any like considerations with diet or eating around insulin intake? Cause there is with exercise. So I'm just curious to hear if there is around the like diet side of things. Yeah, I, you just need to make sure that your 
dosing your insulin units according to the food that you're eating. So um, for most people, maybe that's roughly the same throughout the day, every day, in which case that's super simple for them. But if there is special occasions, if they're going on holidays or if they're sick or if they are doing some crazy diet where they're going to be not eating as much or whatever it might be, if there's any huge changes to the intake of food and the timing of the food that they're having or the quality of the food that they're having, all of those sort of situations, you should definitely speak, well, they should definitely speak to their doctor about trying to adjust the doses because oftentimes, yeah, that will be necessary because um, if that's not done, then and you're eating like half the amount that you would otherwise eat, then it's probably going to put you into a hypo, which obviously isn't great. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, definitely need to be cautious of any drastic changes in your diet and making sure that your insulin is adjusted accordingly. And do you do much, like when you see clients come in, do you have to do much education around that or generally they kind of know what they need to be doing? Like how do you find that experience? Yeah, I actually don't see a whole, I haven't seen a whole lot of clients that are on insulin. So I think most of the patients I see are, they're either newly diagnosed or they're kind of still at that point where they're trying to, like they're, you know, trying to manage it through food because um, obviously insulin comes into play when it gets a bit out of um, out of control and it can't, can no longer be managed mm-hmm. through food and lifestyle and exercise and things like that. Um, so I, yeah, I actually don't have as much to do with the patients that are um, on insulin insulin do you um i mean we have a few that um is on insulin so we just have to make sure and they they know this now that we've you know provided education around timing of exercise with dosage of insulin um but a lot of the time that they'll have that earlier in the morning or they'll have it later at night so it's just making sure that the exercise is outside that kind of two hour window so we're not having like a doubly effect with the insulin and the yes. exercise um you know uptaking yes. the glucose so point, yeah. so yeah i think a lot of the time people who are on insulin have been to see like a diabetes educator or a dietitian <laughs> or their gps just really kind of got them all over what they need to be doing um there's yeah. always those few exceptions though that need more education but again that's where i would refer them back to like someone like yourself or the diabetes educator just to help improve their understanding of that importance for their health so yeah so yeah we do yeah. see we do see i'd say we'd see them not like all the time but they're more often than not so yeah um yeah. now i know you also do like some um class sessions um yeah. and i think one of the topics is you do like helping people read food labels so i thought i'd just quickly mm. ask kind of what that looks like and what you have to you know show people and educate them around yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so with food labels, it can be a bit of a, um, yeah, a bit of a minefield, I guess. And um, manufacturers oftentimes don't have our best interests at heart with the way that they're trying to promote food products, etc. Um, so I think that, yeah, we just need to kind of um, think critically when we're interpreting food labels. So, for example, if something says that it's low carb or low sugar or whatever else it might be. Remember, all food is made up of those three macronutrients, carbs, fat and protein. So if something's low in sugar, then chances are maybe it's higher. It's got a higher quantity of fat. And remember, fat's double the energy density of um, carbs. So put that in relation to whatever your goal might be. Um, And yeah, kind of. And yeah, you can use that to 
um, yeah, think, yeah, think critically about it. And so if we're looking at the back then, the nutrition information panel, um, things that we can do is make sure that we're, when, when you're using it as a point of comparison, just make sure you're comparing similar products together. So don't compare like a yogurt to a cereal or whatever it might be. Compare a yogurt to a yogurt, a custard to a custard. Um, compare a cereal to a cereal. Um, generally, it depends on what your goals are, but um, as a sort of rule of thumb, something that's high in protein um, would be 10 grams or above per 100 grams of protein. Um, so that might be useful if you're trying to increase muscle mass or if you're trying to um, you're trying to lose weight because having high protein foods can help with satiation and satiety. So that might be of use there. Um, I mentioned the fiber one before, five grams per 100 grams or above is a good source of fiber. Um, if you have cholesterol sort of issues, maybe looking at the saturated fat content might be important. So um, opting for trying to get make sure it's around that two grams per 100 grams or less than that. Um, anything much above that is yeah, getting a little bit high for saturated fat um, sugars. So yeah, type two diabetes management, I tell my clients to look at the sugar content. And um, you just want to generally try and make sure that that's around that less than 15 grams per 100 grams. Um, and yeah, that and the reason we look at the sugars is because that's like the added sugars. So that's the that's the part that's going to contribute to the high spike in your blood sugar levels. So you want to try and keep that as low as possible. Um, sodium, anything less than 400 milligrams per 100 grams is generally good for patients that have high blood pressure or whatever else it might be. Um, and yeah, energy, if weight loss is your goal, then just opt for the lower energy option. Um yeah, I think that's the main. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good summary. I think I I learned a few things in there, and you're so good with all your numbers. You remember them all off the top oh. of your head. So <laughs> well done. <laughs> There's so many to remember, but yeah, I think I yeah I, I agree. I think it's just knowing all what they all mean, what sort of amounts mm. you need to be having, and we can't expect everyone, and particularly clients, to know all of this. And that's why our job is the job we have. Um, showing them, educating, but I think the more they can understand that, the better that's going to help with their intake and then, you know, improving their blood sugar levels and also improving their weight if that's something of concern. Um, do you have yeah. any other common questions that you get asked, like in your consults, particularly with people who are living with type 2 diabetes? Mm. Um, something that has come up a couple of times is with regards to like vegan, vegetarian diets and okay. using like and how that kind of contributes or can help with or not help with type 2 diabetes management. Um, and I think it's maybe an interesting point to bring up because it relates back to our earlier conversation that we were having about um, low carb stuff and how, you know, as soon as people are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, oftentimes they think that they can't have carbs. Um, there's actually been studies that have been done um, on like patients following a vegan diet for X amount of time. Um, versus again just that standard model of care and they actually found that the um, insulin sensitivity was better in the people that were following a vegan diet which I think shows that um, yeah I think that's like the icing on top that just shows that um, yeah avoiding carbs isn't necessary to manage type 2 diabetes because as we know if you're vegan vegetarian diets they're predominantly carbs so yeah um, follow that a like most of what they're eating is going to be carbohydrates and to show that they can still 
manage type 2 diabetes while following that diet, I think shows that, you know, I think if you, if you're thinking of type 2 diabetes equals no carbs, then I think you're missing the bigger picture. Um, I think that weight loss, obviously, we know that that 5% weight loss is shown to kind of clinically improve insulin sensitivity, HbA1c, all of those other sorts of things. Um, so if you know, if you're doing a keto diet and it's kind of leading to weight loss, then yeah, weight loss maybe is helping kind of better manage or treat your type 2 diabetes. Um, if you're following a vegan diet and that's helping you lose weight, then that's going to help you treat or manage your type 2 diabetes. Um, but yeah, I think if you're just thinking of it in terms of, yeah, carbs and needing to avoid them, then yeah, I think you're missing the point. And so, um, yeah, you can definitely manage type 2 diabetes while on a vegan diet, which is good to know as well. Yeah, very interesting. I think people's minds that's probably not the first diet they're they're jumping towards but there's definitely a lot of people out there living with you know those different ways of eating now so I think it's becoming more and more mainstream it's just making sure that it's right for them and their health I guess long term um any anything else that you get asked commonly that you can think of um I guess maybe just um just like why does diet matter in general and so um when yeah when I'm asked that um I guess yeah the first port of call is I just kind of explain the diet disease relationship between um the food that you're eating and how that influences your blood sugar levels um how insulin resistance happens over time using that you know the lock and key analogy which I'm sure maybe you use as well um and just kind of explaining that there's specifically with type 2 diabetes and especially for type 2 diabetes there's a huge 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 link between what we're eating and the lifestyle that we have versus the physiology of that um, disease in our body so um yeah there's a there's so much that we can do to try and manage that condition through food i agree and i mean there's a small exception where people might be eating really well and the diet isn't the causation of the the diabetes it can be other things like hormone regulation medication overuse um what other things inflammatory disorders and diseases so i mean in that sense that's where that person still needs to make sure they're eating correctly and you know healthy but it might not be the main cause and it's it's just still important to note that dietitians can still help in that aspect as well because you know, it's going to affect different types of metabolic processes. So where you might not be helping the diabetes specifically, it might be then filtering into the other part of the conditions that maybe, you know, leading to that diabetes as well, I think. So it's still, like you said, it's still diet still matters, whether you're, you know, eating holistically and um, just trying to make sure you're eating all the right things or you've decided to try one of the intense diets, that's completely up to the individual. But I think our job is just mm. to better support them and educate them so that way that they're getting the health outcomes they want to achieve. Yeah, definitely. Totally. Um, well, I've really enjoyed chatting. I feel like we could just talk for hours. There's so many things to cover. <laughs> um, what we might do is let's finish with your best piece of advice to give to people living with diabetes or type 2 diabetes in particular. Um, what would be those take-home messages or the things you'd want them to take away from that session with yourself around the eating and diet side of things? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, studies show time and time again that calorie deficit until as lean as appropriate is always a good way to go. Um, Exercise, that's obviously another 
key component to it. So um, we can't kind of um, ignore or yeah, disregard that. Um, I would say, again, just considering the quantity, the quality and distribution throughout the day. So low GI spreading evenly throughout the day and considering those, you know, serves of carbs um, as well. So making sure you're not having five serves of carbs in one sitting, maybe try and opt for two or three um, and trying to regulate that as well. Um, I would say definitely talk to your health professional or whoever you're working with and get a game plan for how you're going to manage or treat your type 2 diabetes um, and keep in mind if you are wanting to opt for the more intense sort of version of it, then it's not it's not something that I think um, most patients would be able to go off and do on their own and it would require lots of working really closely with um, a range of different health professionals. So um, I think not being naive to that as well um, and not thinking of these sort of low carb shake things as like a quick fix. It requires a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of money to be done properly. So um, yeah, I think that that would probably be the main ones in a nutshell. Yeah, I think those are really important, um, all of the points you covered there. And as always, I'm very much a collaborative, holistic approach. So I think, yeah, combining your um, allied health team, whether you're seeing, you know, a dietitian, an exercise physiologist, a podiatrist, a diabetes educator, endocrinologist, your GP, it's important that you center the care around that client so they get the best possible outcomes. There's nothing worse than when you're working with a client and no one's talking to each other. So we all, you know, have miscommunications, mixed messages, and the client's actually relaying the information. I think for me, I see that as really kind of poor practice. So I always like yeah. to make sure I put my, um, you know, put myself out there and be like, hey, I'm Ashley, I'm the exercise physiologist. Let's work together for this client. So a hundred percent agree. We definitely know the benefits of exercise. Well, on our podcast, you'll just hear us talk about it till the end of time. We know that it's very beneficial for most types of health conditions, but I think, yeah, when we, when we can work together, particularly in this um, population with diabetes, balancing the exercise with the diet is so crucial to produce those kind of successful health outcomes and behavior change long-term. So yeah, it's really important that we work, that we work together. Yeah. Definitely. I agree a hundred percent. Well, thanks Jess for coming on. We've, I found your, what you've told us really informative. Like I've learned a few things and I think it's just interesting to hear from the other side as we call it. Um, yeah, side, of, yeah. <laughs> we've got the exercise side, you've got the diet and eating side. So, um, so thank you for um, giving us your time and explaining some of those kind of more um, stigma related questions. Cause I think it, yeah, it's answered a few things for myself as well as other people listening out there. So thanks so much. Um, no worries. Thank you so much for having me on. I like, this has been such a fun conversation. I love talking about this sort of stuff. And like, I struggle to, like, I obviously talk to my friends about it and my partner's probably sick of me talking about it, but it's nice to talk to someone who is so receptive to it as well. And I hope <laughs> your listeners are too. Like I, yeah, I, I could just keep talking about this for a million years. But, um, yeah, I agree we should probably call it there. And thank you so much for having me on as well. It's been awesome. Yeah, no worries. We'll have to do another one again. Um, I'm sure if we get some more questions, we can we can put one together. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. And look out for our next podcast coming soon. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. So remember to share, like or follow to 
keep updated with all our podcasts and educational resources.